Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what it looks like when the nuclear experts get it wrong. For this week's interview, we revisit my talk with Dr. Lloyd C. Williams, an organizational psychologist who specializes in working with Fortune 100-level companies as a management and organizations consultant and coach. Dr. Williams coined the term organizational psychosis and explains what it is, how it applies to Japan, TEPCO, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and the entire nuclear industry. He also provides us with some keys as to what it will take for our movement to turn around these psychologically damaged nuclear industry entities. That interview, plus our weekly radiation protection tip, numbnuts of the week, and more will be coming up in just a few minutes. Today is Tuesday, August 20, 2013, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. Again this week, the only place to start out is Japan the center of international nuclear awareness as the situation at Fukushima continues to intensify. To recap, Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, admitted last Tuesday that 300 tons of highly contaminated water had leaked out of a storage tank at Fukushima Daiichi. A spokesmodel for the operator said that leaked water contained 800 million becquerels of radiation per liter. Fukushima Governor Yune Sato has urged the central government to take the initiative in dealing with the wastewater leak, describing the situation as a national emergency. On Monday, August 19, TEPCO officials reported that they had detected 100 millisieverts per hour of radiation on the surface of puddles near the tanks surrounding the remains of No. 4 reactor building. The maximum annual exposure limit for nuclear plant workers is 50 millisieverts. So this was twice as intense per hour as maximum exposure for nuclear power workers in a year. Unit 4 still holds the intact spent fuel precariously on its top. Officials from Japan's Nuclear Regulatory Authority assessed the problem as a level 1 incident on an 8-point international scale, as if this leak took place in isolation from everything else that has been happening at Fukushima Daiichi. Some insiders who protest against nuclear have suggested that a more appropriate number might be 20 or above. Now concerns continue to grow that the land underneath Fukushima reactor buildings is at risk of turning liquid like mud. The large volume of groundwater flowing under the plant is creating the possibility that the land it stands on will liquefy if another major earthquake hits. Experts, including the METI Nuclear Accident Response Director of Japan, has warned that the constant flow of water may lead to further structural instability of the buildings. Professor Andrew DeWitt of the School of Policy Studies at Rikyo University in Tokyo states in an article, TEPCO is doing everything with an eye on costs, including constructing the storage tanks for containment water out of the cheapest materials possible. Nuclear Hot Seat Special Correspondent Beverly Finlay Kaneko, who has been in Japan covering an anti-nuclear conference, learned there that these tanks were hastily fabricated and bolted, not welded, storage tanks. Further, she said that according to Tokyo Shimbun, one of Japan's leading newspapers, The level of radiation per hour is equal to a 100-year dose, 
In another announcement on August 19, TEPCO officials said that they have detected radioactive cesium above alert levels in the air around the site of the world's worst nuclear disaster. Workers have now been instructed to wear full protective masks in all areas of the site. That warning to workers comes too late for several Fukushima decontamination workers. Last week, TEPCO admitted that it accidentally sprayed these workers with radioactive dust that held a level five times the limit for radiation set by the utility. Three hours after the exposure, contamination was found on the bodies of ten of these workers, one of them then taken by ambulance to a nearby hospital. No word on his current condition. Then on Monday of this week, two more workers on site were hit by radiation levels three times the safety limit set by TEPCO. In response, the utility said in a prepared statement that it, quote, deeply apologizes, end quote, for its mistake. As regards SafeGoing TEPCO's current plans to start removing Unit 4's spent fuel rods in November, Arnie Gunderson, a veteran U.S. nuclear engineer and whistleblower who now heads Fairwinds Energy Education, said, The operation is fraught with danger including the possibility of a large release of radiation if a fuel assembly breaks, gets stuck, or gets too close to an adjacent bundle. There is a risk of an inadvertent criticality if the bundles are distorted and get too close together, Gunderson said. The problem with a fuel pool criticality is that you can't stop it. There are no control rods. This refers to an atomic chain reaction. As to what it will take to safeguard the Fukushima Daiichi site, Gunderson said, I think they will get to the point of throwing concrete on Fukushima reactors and coming back in 300 to 500 years. With all this going on, Japan still offers us two candidates for Nuclear Hot Seat, Numbnuts of the Week, the coveted weekly award for nuclear boneheadedness. Runner-up goes to TEPCO, which has sent engineers on visits to the Hanford site in Washington State this year to learn from their decades of work treating millions of gallons of radioactive waste. For those of you who missed the previous stories on the Hanford site, either on Nuclear Hot Seat or on King 5 News in Seattle, the highly radioactive waste at Hanford, which is one of the ten most polluted places on the face of the planet, has now leaked out of double-walled containment, is in the ground, and is believed to be heading towards the adjacent Columbia River, thus putting the entire Columbia River Basin at risk. This is where TEPCO goes for its role models in handling nuclear waste? Like I said, that one is runner-up for numbnuts of the week, but here's the real one. Despite the land and ocean surrounding the crippled Fukushima nuclear plant being contaminated by dangerous and still rising levels of radiation, plans are being drawn up to turn the no-go zone into a tourist attraction. Woohoo! Break out the cotton candy. Fukushima Gate Village. Fukushima Gate. Now that's a concept, but it's being called Fukushima Gate Village and it would be located on the edge of the exclusion zone, around 25 miles from the site of the world's worst nuclear accident. Doesn't that just make you want to grab the kids and the granny and pack a picnic lunch? 
A group of authors, scholars, academics, and architects hope the new village will serve to remind future generations of the disaster of March 11, 2011. Like they're gonna forget? It is hoped by this group that the new community will provide employment for local residents, thousands of whom are still not able to return to their homes for more than a few hours because of the ongoing risks. And if that's not a numbnuts of the week, I don't know what is. Over to international news. To Canada, which, yes, is international for those of you here in the United States. Something is fishy in Canada. Actually, quite a lot. A lot of fish news this week. A Canadian official who publicly claims no concern over new Fukushima leak information has privately requested tests on salmon due to what he calls great public concern about potential radiation contamination in these fish. British Columbian provincial health official Dr. Perry Kendall has said increased levels of radiation pouring into the Pacific Ocean from the fractured Fukushima Daiichi power plant in Japan does not concern Canadian officials. We don't believe there's any radiation being carried across the Pacific. Dr. Kendall went on to say, Health Canada also said that it doesn't consider the radiation a threat. But Gordon Edwards of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility said, To test for fish only the first year after Fukushima is wrong, because radiation builds up in food chains over a long time, even centuries. I'm very sad if they have the attitude that if they found low levels only in the first year, then more testing is a waste of time. That is Alice in Wonderland science. Sockeye salmon are at a dire historic low on Canada's Pacific coast. The North Coast Area Director for the Department of Fisheries and Oceans said department scientists don't know why the return numbers are so low. The numbers out of Bristol Bay, Alaska are down 30 to 35 percent over last year and Russia is down about 40% over all their salmon fisheries. That may be a surprise to some, but more than two years ago, Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds.com said in an interview with Chris Martinson, we are going to see top-of-the-food chain animals like tuna and salmon bioaccumulate. By 2013, we might see contamination of the water and the the top-of-the-food chain fishes on the West Coast. I've been trying to get the people of Oregon to demand of their state, the people of Alaska to demand of their state. Check the salmon. Wikipedia reports that salmon have a lifespan of about five years. Most sockeye salmon stay at sea for two years, returning to spawn at about age four. That means that the current low numbers reflect those fish that migrated to the ocean two to three years ago when the Fukushima disaster first began. And this final fish story out of Korea. Consumer concerns about the safety of Japanese fish imports into Korea since the Fukushima nuclear disaster took place look to be justified. Authorities there say since the disaster began in 2011, more than 6,000 pounds of fish from Japan have been found to contain levels of radioactive cesium. Some products showed up to 98 becquerels, So when it comes to fish that have even touched the Pacific Ocean, it's safest to just say no. Christmas came early for nuclear plant operator Entergy last week. First on August 14th, 
Vermont learned that states' rights only go so far when it comes to nuclear. State lawmakers in Vermont had been trying to force the closure of the 41-year-old Vermont Yankee plant, owned by Entergy, by denying it permits following radioactive leaks and other safety concerns. But a U.S. Court of Appeals ruled on Wednesday that doing so was beyond the legislature's power, upholding a lower court's ruling that states are preempted by federal law from regulating nuclear safety. Then on Monday, August 19, federal regulators ruled, as expected, that the Indian Point nuclear power reactor, situated less than 30 miles from midtown Manhattan, can keep running after its license expires next month. Would they let me do that with my car? The Nuclear Regulatory Commission said yesterday that Indian Point 2 in Buchanan can operate while its license renewal application is being reviewed. New York State and environmental groups are opposing a new 20-year license extension on this obsolete piece of nuclear technology. Some of you may not be aware of it, but the worst radiological release from a nuclear accident in the United States was not Three Mile Island, as bad as that was. It came from the Santa Susana Field Lab, less than 30 miles from downtown Los Angeles, and took place in 1959, though it was kept secret from the public and the story not broken until 1979. Three years ago, the U.S. Energy Department and NASA agreed to clean their parcels of the Santa Susana Field Lab down to background levels, the most stringent standard to apply, essentially returning the land to its natural state. But Boeing Corporation, which owns the lion's share of the site, has opted to follow cleanup rules drawn up in a 2007 pact requiring the site to be scrubbed to a lesser standard. The defense contractor wants to transform its tainted section into a park, and says it's doing more than necessary to meet that goal. Hmm, give or take a little radioactivity in the land and in the dust. Some local residents who have developed leukemia, breast cancer, or serious thyroid conditions blame their health problems on their proximity to Santa Susana. State regulators are hoping Boeing will commit to a stricter cleanup standard by appealing a judge's decision that sided with the company. And finally, this story, which was a strong contender for numbnuts of the week. The Oregon Republican Party's newly elected chairman wants to sprinkle radioactive waste from airplanes to build up our resistance to degenerative diseases. According to the Access to Energy newsletter of April 1st, 1997, and no, that is not an April Fool's joke, Art Robinson, the new Republican chairman, wrote... All we need do with nuclear waste is dilute it to a low radiation level and sprinkle it over the ocean, or even over America, after hormesis is better understood and verified with respect to more diseases. Hormesis, the theory that exposure to radiation makes you more prone to being able to resist it, has been roundly discredited as junk science by credible scientists around the world. When radioactive groundwater was found beneath a decommissioned nuclear generating plant, Robinson wrote, It is unfortunate that this water under San Onofre is being wasted. If we could use it to enhance our own drinking water here in Oregon, where background radiation is low, it would hormetically enhance our resistance to degenerative diseases. To which Nuclear Hot Seat would like to state, Hormesis? No, Republican Chairman Robinson. Hor- Uses. And that's 
Oh, the heck with it. Let's give this numbnuts of the week as well. Time for the interview. Dr. Lloyd C. Williams is an organizational psychologist, coach, and management consultant to Fortune 100-level companies. Throughout his long career, Dr. Williams has accomplished and led programs as chair and professor at UC Berkeley, the Universities of Notre Dame, Massachusetts, Grenoble Business School, the International School of Management, the University of Singapore. This man has an international reputation for reorganizing governments, agencies, and places like the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Williams coined the term organizational psychosis. And considering how often we see crazy behavior by governments and corporations involved with nuclear, what he has to say goes a long way towards explaining in clinical terms not only what the problem is with the nuclear establishment, but how we as a movement might strategize to turn this insane nuclear stance around. Dr. Williams, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much. First of all, give us a general sense of what you do for organizations. Um, I work in a variety of different arenas. One is in the area of leadership development and leadership coaching. Another is in the area of change management, change development processes, and how those work effectively with different types of persons. Multicultural and multinational issues and program development issues for organizations. And then... I guess basically looking at maintaining the social, emotional, and effective health of the organization through addressing issues such as depression, anxiety, fears, trepidations, psychosis, those types of things. You coined the term organizational psychosis. What does that mean? Organizational psychosis is uh, the creation of a set of norms and actions that craft structures within the organization that are unable to distinguish the rational process of change and development from the irrational structures of power control, disempowerment, and dysfunction. It is the development of dysfunction based on a set of prescribed strategies that increase the potential for control through the devaluing and the creation of personal mistrust and personal self-esteem thereby creating a dependence on the organizational leader and the structure to validate the needs of everything. So effectually what happens is organizations go down a path of doing the same things over and over again, assuming that they'll get a different outcome. Which, of course, is the definition of insanity. Which is the definition of insanity. What puts an organization, be it a government, a corporation, an agency, What puts it on the road to organizational psychosis? The common answer would be arrogance. The real answer would be a belief that they have all the information they need to make informed decisions, and they don't. And so they start going down a path of making a decision and being unwilling to say, I was wrong, and so they keep piling on things for that decision. And it begins to create a sense of irrationality. And that irrationality becomes very, very difficult for anyone to address. And because the individual who makes that decision has the power, control, and authority, persons become fearful to say, I think you're wrong. I think we need to go down a different path because the leader is in charge. So how does that apply to a culture such as Japan? 
which seems to be one of compliance and not rocking the boat and going along with whatever is in front of them without challenge. Well, I think that's a fairly clear description of what occurs. If, if you come from a xenophobic culture that says that everyone must think, act, feel, do the same, then it's very hard for anyone within that culture to bring up a concern that perhaps we might be going down a wrong path. Perhaps we might be making a poor decision. Perhaps we might be doing things that will harm people. Perhaps we're doing things that might cause a rethinking, revaluing of what we do in the culture to do something different. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? It does. Could you talk a little bit more about how this disconnect... I mean, it seems that there's something incongruent about being in a culture where something is known to be right, but the actions are wrong, such as what's been happening since the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster happened. Let's see if I can say it a little differently. Japan, in fact, most of Asia, operates from a very communal value set. And the communal value set says that what is best for the community, what is best for the culture, what is best for the group, is more important, more valuable than what happens for an individual. So that's the first thing. And to try and address that differently makes you an outlier, makes you an outcast, puts you on the outside of everyone else. If you are Japanese and you do that process of becoming the one who's the outcast, the outlier, you may not only experience isolation and separation from the from the cor- the organization of the corporation, but you may experience it also from your family, from your culture, and everything else. So you're all you're out there all by yourself. Now, in the Western world that is a process of individuation and that individuation allows persons to discover who they themselves are and what it means they might need to do in an eastern philosophical stance that's much more difficult because the process of individuation is not something that is valued what is valued more is communalism so for someone in japan to say, I think we're going down the wrong path relative to the development of a nuclear reactor or the development of our nuclear policy and so forth. And, and you come from a culture where a leader can say something and everyone has to follow along, then the necessary role of individuation doesn't begin to occur. Instead, it's this communal role that continues to go down a wrong path, at least, let's say, in terms of nuclear thinking. Not necessarily a wrong path in everything, but sometimes some of the issues that have to be addressed in a society, in a culture, need to be addressed from an individuation standpoint more so than a communal standpoint. In Japan, with all the pressure for people to remain in a communal situation, Since Fukushima Daiichi, there have been some truly egregious stances taken by the government. For example, they lied about the fact that three meltdowns had taken place. For months, they withheld that information. 
The Japanese government and TEPCO were not forthcoming about the radiation levels and dangers, not only for their own people, but to the United States government and the USS Ronald Reagan, which went to Japan on a humanitarian mission, putting all the seamen aboard in harm's way. They will not allow people who are suffering the negative health impact of radiation exposure to even mention radiation as a possible cause when they go to see the doctor. And if anyone does mention radiation, they're made fun of and told that if they smile, they won't have any negative effects or suffering. So there's a huge disconnect between the communal following of leaders and the individual experience of many people in Japan. And that is starting to move them into activism. Is this a pattern you have seen happen in organizations where the personal disconnect from the leaders starts moving people into an activist response? And if so, how do you see that play out? Uh, incongruence competition, which means I do not have equal power, so I create an organizational system that can challenge you with a sense of power. In America, that would have been the unions. Uh, challenging corporations around employee rights and things of that nature. In other places, rather than it being something as formalized as a union, it may be something such as a coalition of persons who pull together to fight against a particular issue. So there may be groups of Japanese persons who have banded together in a coalition of effort to say something about radiation, say something about poor decision-making, say something about choices that harm the community, say something about choices that would impact children for a long time. Now, that's one way of looking at it. The underpinning component of that can be a form of PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. And what that means is that individuals experience a loss of three things, a loss of safety, a loss of security, and a loss of trust. When that gets built up over a long period of time without getting addressed, as you're describing, a patient goes to the doctor and the doctor says, smile and everything will be okay, persons begin to dissociate. And dissociation suggests that they will come up with a different persona, a different face, a different image to try and make themselves more acceptable to others, even though there are an enormous pain underneath. So once they're in disconnect from themselves, they might be moving into a personality that would be more challenging to authority than they would normally be. Do they usually go to the more passive state, or does it trigger people into activism? It could trigger people into an activist stance. But the activist stance would be more from a communal perspective than from a personal perspective. So they're, they're trying to do it according to the cultural norms that they're used to, rather than doing it from where they themselves personally are, because that's not something they talk about. They don't talk about where they personally are. They talk about where we are rather than where I am. So once they're in disconnect from themselves, they might be moving into a personality that would be more challenging to authority than they would normally be. Do they usually go to the more passive state, or does it trigger people into activism? Potentially, yes. I couldn't say that unless I was actually there and could actually meet with persons to see that, but potentially, yes. Persons live by different schemas that they've created about their life. And the schemas are about who I am, how I relate to my world, how my world relates to me, and it gives a sense of, of how I'm going to walk my path down this world. So let's say you are Japanese 
and you have created a schema that all is right, government will always tell me the truth, family is more important than individual, so forth and so on. You have a schema that you've created that says communalism is more important than individuation. That's the first schema. Now, as you walk through that process, if you begin to have hits against your schema, okay, finding out the government is lying, having challenges around the decision-making for a nuclear power plant being built, family telling you, shut up, be quiet, listen, and just do what everybody else is doing. All of a sudden, you're beginning to wonder whether or not your schema was real, whether or not your schema was a good schema, and you begin to sense that those challenges are there. So you begin to try and individuate. And as you begin to try and individuate, what the culture and everybody says to you is you're not worthy to individuate. You have to stay within the communal system. Okay? So you begin to become anxious, depressed, isolated, feeling invisible, feeling hidden, feeling trapped. And those emotions take a much greater hold of you than the normal stoic face that you would normally have. So even if you try and present a stoic face, underneath all this trauma is beginning to occur. And that's that process of dissociation. I present my stoic face, but underneath I'm in a lot of pain, I'm in a lot of turmoil, I'm in a lot of trauma, and I don't know how to help myself move. Okay? Now, the reason I said organizational psychosis is because the exact same thing that I've just described to you about an individual also occurs within the organization. An organization has made a decision. It wasn't a good one. But they can't go back because they would lose face and say, I've made a bad decision. We should not be doing this or we should do this differently. So they continue down this irrational spiral around the nature of the choices and the decisions that they make. Now, technologically, scientifically, throughout the world, we do things and implement things before we know everything about what we're doing. So sometimes we do things without knowing what the consequences are beforehand. Or we do things and either our information or the psychotic components of the organization cause us to demystify, devalue, disavow any real challenge with what we have done. So the government doesn't tell you about all the nuclear accidents or nuclear incidents that have occurred because they want to say they don't matter. Or they tell you that the radiation levels could never be large enough to really do you any harm. Or they tell you uh, the foods and everything that we grow are protected from the radiation. Or they tell you, doctors will help you, and at the same time they say to doctors, this is something you cannot talk about. All of those things are forms of the irrational structures being created around power control, disempowerment, and dysfunction. That's the nature of the organizational psychosis. Okay? So, organizational psychosis ultimately becomes the manner in which we impair our interpersonal and organizational functioning and relationship to the internal and external world 
and we block our potential, our ability to get things accomplished. So we create unsupported choices, ineffective decisions, personal discounting, and it becomes the direction in the way of the company or the, com- or the country or whomever around a particular issue. So to try and say to a country or a government, you made decisions without real support, you made decisions that were ineffective, you made decisions that harmed us personally even though you didn't think they were doing anything negatively to the business, all of those things are forms of the organizational psychosis that begins to occur. And breaking that process requires persons to look at things very, very differently through using differing types of lenses. That was where I wanted to move next, because in this discussion of organizational psychosis, you've not only described Japan and TEPCO, but also the Nuclear Regulatory Commission here in the U.S., the San Onofre operators, Southern California Edison, and really the rest of the nuclear industry. We've seen these behaviors up close. So if you were called in to promote a turn to organizational sanity or organizational congruence, let's keep taking Japan as the example, where would you start and what steps would need to be taken? Well, the first thing would be to ask them, do they really know what the issues are that are impacting them? And the them that you're talking about, is this the government, the population, which is it? I could do it with all of them, okay? I could do it with all of them separately, collectively. But, but the issue is there are seven things they need to do. And the first is they must look at do they have true clarity around what the issues are and what the dynamics are. And that means that part of the clarity dynamic is understanding what's happening for people, understanding what ha- what's happening for systems, understanding what's happening for cultures, understanding what's happening for communities. If you do not go about getting all of that information up front, you never have clarity around the issues. Therefore, you can never make a sound decision about a strategy. So the first thing is to recognize you you have to get clarity, and you have to get that from communal perspective as well as an individuation perspective. Secondly, you have to collaborate. Now, collaborating means you have to collaborate without power. It means you have to give up your power in order to be able to collaborate with someone else to hear what are possible outcomes. What are possible strategies? If you assume that because you had the MBA, because you're the CEO of a corporation, because you were this, you've been there a long time, that you know best, you cannot collaborate. Collaboration requires that I let go of, I surrender my power to experience what others have to say about the issue so that we can come up with a reasonable strategy. Third thing is what, what I would call compliments. There are always anchors within what has been done that you don't want to throw away. So the third thing is to recognize I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Instead, I want to try and understand what are the anchors that have mattered, that have worked well for our culture, our society, our organizations that I want to keep while at the same time I look at how to be different. The fourth is what I call creativity. Now, by that I mean we have been taught in business school since 1980 that we should innovate, 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 innovate. Well, innovation means reworking the dead. You innovate because something stopped working. It died. So you're innovating it. Well, 
if this is going to work, you can't innovate. You can't take what has gone on with the budget and add 10% and assume that's going to work. Instead, you've got to be creative. So that means you have to not pay attention to what the dead was, but instead look at what really will resolve the issues for all the persons impacted. Remember in organizational psychosis, it's about power, control, and authority through irrational choice. So in order to create, you have to be willing to give up the power, control, and authority to be able to see what options and possibilities really do exist. If you're able to do those first four, clarity, collaboration, compliments, and creativity, then you are able to make a choice. And the choice is a creative choice. From that choice, you then must look at what are the multiple levels if we make this choice that are either happening or not happening, and how do we close that gap? Okay? And only by doing that can you get to a place of congruence. So my first perspective would be that those first four steps have never taken place around nuclear power. I think that would be accurate. No, they've never taken place around nuclear power, nuclear reactors, nuclear infusion into a community, because the decision-making process, the thinking process, the acting process has been compartmentalized rather than congruent. So it's almost as though they went through a Cartesian perspective that said, if I tweak this component over here, everything else will get fixed. And in reality, that doesn't occur. Okay? So, effectually, what we've created globally is ineffective organizations, organizational incongruence, and substantive organizational psychosis. And we push away, we push away anyone who might say something about that, like me, or like the coalition groups in Japan, who might say, stop, can we at least dialogue about what exists? Can we at least dialogue and speak truth about what is happening rather than continually trying to save face? How do we make a real difference that works effectively for the entire population rather than the government and the organization? It sounds like something that needs to come from a willingness within government or the organization. And, of course, the situation that we are facing is that neither the Japanese government nor TEPCO, we'll leave the U.S. out of it for now, but that neither one of them seems open to this kind of a course correction. What advice would you give to the anti-nuclear movement, to those who are wanting more congruence and sanity on this issue? What kind of steps could we take from the outside to try and create that change within the dysfunctional government and corporate organizations? Create that by sharing with people what is the level of organizational incongruence, what is the level of organizational psychosis, and how has it shaped and shifted and changed the country and the culture. So you're talking about the equivalent of consciousness raising, people reaching out to each other and talking to build consensus. Consciousness raising and action raising as well, because... Just raising someone's conscious consciousness does not mean that they will therefore take action to empower themselves around that consciousness. So you have to do both at the same time. That's one. The second piece is it doesn't have to come just from the government or from the company that, that has created the nuclear power. 
It can come from everyone else who can speak to what are the challenges. When you think about organizational psychosis, there's some other components. Some of the other components are content of thought. When the thoughts that you're using in your actions by the government or by the company perpetuate implausible outcomes and a sense of persecution and paranoia, that blocks the ability of people to really have a clear sense of what's going on. So that's sort of like content of thought. If the forms of thought are about creating fear and creating myopia and creating only one way of looking at things, and the forms of thought are fighting the loosening of traditional strong associations within an organization. One of the challenges is, in all of those things, content of thought, form of thought, perception, is it's about thinking. It is not about affect and feeling. And change only occurs when the affect is initialized. Tell us a little bit more about what that means. You can't create change within a society or within yourself if there's not an accessing of your emotions, your feelings, that are driving what is impacting you, what's, what's harming you. So if your affect is flat, listless, lethargic, protective, psychosis is set in in the organization and the person. If the person, however, can access their affect and say, I feel this, I desire this, I, I hurt here, I enjoy this here, I do that, whatever, then they're beginning to become alive in their process. Flat affect leads to depression, despondency, and listlessness on the job. And in this case, it's created depression, despondency, and listlessness within the society and the culture. Because everybody say, I feel this, why can't you hear me? I feel this, why don't you touch me? I feel this, why don't, why don't, why don't, why don't, why don't? And the response ultimately is, smile. The response ultimately is, stand quietly in line as we have always done. The response is never, I hear you, what can I do to help you? That's not the response you get. So, the sense of self gets attacked. The ability to sense yourself as unique, capable, competent, responsive, has been replaced by a belief that you are incompetent, unable to perform, analytical, and usually function without direction. So the sense of self-direction, self-empowerment, belief in self, gets knocked away. So... There becomes no volition. There is a disturbance in self-initiation. There's a disturbance in goal-directed activity. There's a disturbance in role functioning. And people don't know who they are any longer. And the disconnect creates massive dissociation. So it sounds like one of the key aspects of turning this around by the activist community and to help support the growing protest in Japan is that we need to access those emotions with honesty and clarity and make the emotional response visible to others. Would that be accurate? That would be accurate. But here's how I would try and help persons to hear that. To be whole systemically within an organization, communally within your community and culture, individually, is you have to pay attention to four capitals. 
Those four capitals are human capital, community capital, resource capital, and political capital. Human capital is about the people, what's going on within the people, for the people, and how are the people being empowered to, to help themselves be all they can be. Community capital is about the community and the culture. To what extent are the values, beliefs, norms that we've lived by that have helped us grow and be who we are being sustained by the actions that we're taking? Resource capital is about money, equipment, and power. And political capital is about political influence and your ability to impact and get things accomplished by going around the system. Now, since the time of Ronald Reagan and his defeat of the Air Traffic Controllers Union and so forth and so on, we have moved from a focus on the four capitals to a focus on the two capitals. Meaning politics and resources? Resource and political capital, and we've forgotten about human and community capital for almost 35 years. Now, what does that mean? It means that all the actions of business, all the actions of government, have focused on two of four capitals. They haven't focused on the total system. So we have consistently, since that time, made our globe a psychotic globe, our organizations a psychotic organizations, everything, because if you're only focusing on the two and not including the four, then every decision you make disavows the human and community capital. Every decision you make is only focused on the resource and political capitals. That is so accurate. It's a description, certainly, of what's happening here in the United States with the nuclear issue, and it explains Japan. And all I'm saying is the healing space, the healing process, is about the reinvigorating of the four capitals. It's about using my seven C's to understand how to get things accomplished. And it's about paying attention to where systemic processes have really not been systemic, but have instead been compartmentalized strategies to create a certain outcome. And so change is based on trying to understand that. And so I have a process by which I teach people how to do that, how to get through that level of psychosis to a sense of organizational wellness how to get individuals from that process of psychosis to a sense of wellness, how to help individuals look at the schemas that that are taking them downward and how to instead build different schemas that can cause them to see their worlds differently. If people want to learn more about your work, where can they go? They can go to www.ittl.org which is the Institute for Transformative Thought and Learning. If they have specific questions they want to ask, they can ask me by emailing me at O-R-G-D-O-C-T-O-R at I-T-T-L dot O-R-G. Or they can call me if they really want to discuss it at 602-300-1180. This has been a fascinating conversation because you actually have a schema that explains where good governments and other organizations go bad, where maybe they weren't good to begin with, but they were better than they are now. 
so that by understanding the structure that you put forth and where the problems have been perpetuated, we have a chance to institute change. If you have a final thought or suggestion to leave with those of us who are working for nuclear sanity in the world, what would that be? One, go slow to go fast, meaning really assure that you have all the information that you need, that you've walked the path of trying to connect all the dots between people, systems, and culture and community. And then create a plan of action. That would be go slow to go fast. Two, recognize that that congruence is the underpinning base of what you're trying to get to. So that what you feel, what you think, and what you do match and are aligned. And three, learn to trust yourself. If you can trust yourself, you can make movement. That was Dr. Lloyd C. Williams. The links to his website, email, and phone number will all be posted on the Nuclear Hot Seat website, nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. We'll have a radiation protection tip in just a moment. But first, I want to remind you that Nuclear Hot Seat needs your support to keep bringing you the news you won't get anywhere else. An international perspective on the week's nuclear news, radiation protection tips, activist opportunities, numbnuts of the week, more than one if necessary, the NRC doc report, and so much more. So if you like what you hear, or maybe not like, but at least appreciate gaining access to this information, we'd really appreciate a contribution. Go to our website, nuclearhotseat.com, scroll down on the homepage, and click on the big red donate button. It's easy, it's fun, you'll feel good, and it will go a long way towards keeping Nuclear Hot Seat alive. Here's the radiation protection tip for this week, and no disclaimer is required. Mushrooms. Mm-mm-mm. They can be a yummy treat. Saute them in a little butter, spoon them over steak or grains, grill a giant portobello, smack it on a bun with all the fixings, even mushroom ketchup. It's all good. Right? Maybe not. You see, mushrooms are bioaccumulators of radiation. They just sop it up. In Fukushima Prefecture, which used to be the breadbasket, or if you prefer, the rice bowl of Japan, the first crop found to be contaminated by radiation was the mushrooms that had been grown inside a greenhouse. No surprise there, because glass will not stop radiation. Now, mushrooms as radiation sponges might have their use in a decontamination process. That's something that mycologist and author Paul Stamets points out in his viral TED Talk on the topic. But this decontamination work concentrates radionuclides in the mushrooms at much higher levels than any plant exposed to comparable radiation. That turns them into little radiation bombs, bad outside of you, really, really bad to get inside you, where radioactive particles can stick and turn into an internal emitter up close and personal with your vital organs. For that reason, I consider mushrooms number two, two, two on the hit list right after Pacific Ocean fish as a food that the health conscious among us might want to avoid. It's your choice. I'm just saying. Meanwhile, if you've been planning on going to Japan on vacation, and don't laugh, I have some friends who are still making those plans. Makes me nuts. If you still are thinking about this, you might want to rethink your plans. If you have to do business with Japan, make it as digital, online, and virtual as you can so you don't have to travel to the country. But if there's no way to avoid a trip to Japan, you need to protect yourself at the highest possible levels 
That is, if you plan to live out your natural lifespan and have any kind of genetic future for yourself or your offspring. There are supplements to take, foods to take, foods to avoid, physical protection protocols you need to follow. If you would like more information on specifics, contact Nuclear Hot Seat at info at nuclearhotseat.com. Someone will get back to you to help you explore your options. Some activist updates and shout-outs. During last week's interview with Gene Stone of Residents Organized for a Safe Environment, we learned about the upcoming symposium on decommissioning San Onofre and the ongoing dangers of nuclear waste. At that point, some of the speakers were provisional, and now it's official. The Coalition to Decommission San Onofre confirms the participation in this event of nationally regarded nuclear experts Dr. Marvin Resnikoff and Dr. Arjun Makajani. They joined the previously confirmed Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds.com to join us for the October 19 symposium. All the information is posted on ResidentsOrganizedForSafeEnvironment.org and will also be up on our website. The Connecticut Coalition Against Millstone has launched a national drive to persuade Congress to amend the Atomic Energy Act of 1954 to provide states with authority to permanently shut down nuclear power plants for reasons of public health and safety. The coalition's drive was announced a day after the decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit that the state of Vermont had no authority to shut down the Vermont Yankee nuclear reactor. It states in part, Federal nuclear regulators are far removed from the concerns of all the communities in America living in the shadow of nuclear power plants who are fed up with the nuclear industry's lies, chronic malfunctions, radiation and toxic chemical releases, thermal plumes, not to mention spent fuel buildup with no real say. This initiative honors the legacy of Katie the Goat, who served as a radiation monitor near the Millstone Nuclear Power Station in Waterford, Connecticut. Her milk was regularly sampled by Millstone and was found to have high levels of strontium-90 and other radioisotopes. Katie passed away from cancer a year ago this month. The initiative can be found at mothballmillstone.org. There's an online iBook we want to bring to your attention, Fukushima, A Nuclear War Without a War, The Unspoken Crisis of Worldwide Nuclear Radiation, edited by Michelle Chosidovsky. We'll have a link up on the website, and our thanks to Mary Beth Brangin and Eon, the Ecological Options Network, for bringing this important iBook to our attention. There is a great authoritative rebuttal to the blatantly pro-nuclear Pandora's promise. This by a nuclear submariner and former nuclear engineering officer in the Navy. It's too long to go into here, but we all need to be armed with the facts because in November CNN is going to be putting this on and there's going to be a barrage of PR, propaganda, and spin trying to convince the public that nuclear is a really good idea. We will have a link up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com. It's on the blog page. I'm still looking for contacts to John Stewart because I am his nuclear pundit for The Daily Show. It doesn't have to be his producer, though that wouldn't be so bad if you know that person, but his personal chef, driver, the barista at Starbucks who gets his coffee just right, anyone at all. So if you know someone who can help get John and me to sit together, send your leads to info at nuclearhotseat.com. 
even if you don't have a contact, share my intention online in all your platforms because one never knows where lightning might strike. Here's today's final thought. Watching Fukushima feels like one of those dreams where you see a disaster and you run to either stop it or get away from it. But as you run, you keep going slower and slower and it keeps moving faster and faster and you know that no matter how hard you try, it's going to get you and the result is going to be catastrophic. That's when you usually wake up, relieved to be away from the nightmare. Here's the problem with Fukushima. There is no waking up from this nightmare. We don't need to be afraid of terrorists wielding atomic bombs. We just have to wait as the worst atomic danger, the never-ending radiation contamination, comes across the ocean from Japan to get us. Or maybe it comes from our backyard nuclear reactor. No telling which one will be first. As Bonnie Raitt sang so many years ago, Ain't nowhere you can run, no, 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 ain't nowhere you can run. I can't run. So I do the only things I can to help turn this around. I bear witness. I produce a weekly podcast and pass it along. I pray. I go to nature and thank it for being there. I live in the moment, because in truth, that's all any of us have got. All victims who heal eventually learn that the only thing to do with the rage, the sense of helplessness, the unfairness of it all, is to face the perpetrators and speak truth to power, however you can. There's no waking up from the nightmare that nuclear has perpetrated on the world, especially now that we see it at Fukushima. But with eyes wide open, I can stop, not run away, but stare it down and hope to take a big bloody chunk out of it before I'm done. I invite you to join me. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 20th, 2013. Material for this week's podcast has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, Kyoto News, Japan Times, Asahi Shimbun, NHK, Japan Focus, Asia Pacific Journal, Arnie Gunderson and Fairwind's Energy Education, our friend Mochizuki and his blog, Fukushima Diary, Reuters, Bloomberg, The Telegraph, Sun News, The Globe and Mail, Vancouver 24 Hours, Wikipedia, Arirang News, The Korea Herald, Yonhop, Wall Street Journal, Grist.org, CBS St. Louis, RT.com, KSL5 News in Salt Lake City, with special thanks to their reporter, Jed Bowl, Huffington Post, Mother Jones, Access to Energy Newsletter, Albany Democratic Herald, Residents Organized for Safe Environment and its fearless leader, Gene Stone, MothballMillstone.org, Mary Beth Brangin and Eon, the Ecological Options Network, .earth.blogs.newyorktimes.com, TEPCO, World Nuclear News, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community, with shout-outs to special correspondent Beverly Finlay Kaneko and Ray Masalas for his ongoing analysis of the Fukushima story. The Nuclear Hot Seat Archive is available on iTunes or at NuclearHotSeat.com. Go to the blog page. That's where you'll find links, pictures, videos, and many descriptions of each week's content. All kinds of good stuff. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues. Could you tell? So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. We are copyright 2013, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed. 
You have my permission to reuse as long as proper attribution, website, and email are included. That's me, NuclearHotSeat.com, and info at NuclearHotSeat. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that San Onofre is still shut down forever. David and Goliath, but David won! And we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.